How you all doing? Going good? Fantastic. Bit of energy, that's great. That's what we love. Um, God is good. Anyone here go to Franklin Graham on Wednesday night? Well, just such an awesome thing. Uh, those of you who went there would have appreciated the fact that, that we're actually quite quiet as a, as a band. Uh, there was a wall of noise which just resonated, but it was also this amazing, just simple proclamation of the gospel that saw hundreds of people give their life to Jesus. And I love it when the church gathers together, lays down its own agenda and stops building castles and builds the kingdom of God. And we see great mighty fruit. Um, so God's on the move. He is definitely on the move. And uh, I believe he's on the move in this church as well. He's doing wonderful things in our midst. And we're so blessed. Looking forward to having a barbie with the youth later. Um, we're in a series called The Cycle of a Disciple. If you've missed some of it, we are looking at the idea that, that uh, what is, how do we grow as a disciple? What is God's intention for those who would follow him? What does that look like? We talked about the fact that often, I think, churches have a bit of a reputation and a history of being believe, and when you believe, you're allowed to belong, and once you belong to this exclusive club, then you have to behave. But actually, that's not the gospel. That's not what uh, God has done That is in Christ Jesus. That is not what discipleship is about. But discipleship is about having this revelation of belonging, that it's actually in Christ, the work is finished, and we belong. We belong to God. And as that comes to life, then we have this moment, this, sal- this salvific moment where The scales fall off our eyes. We go, wow, look what Jesus has done for me. The work is finished at the cross. We believe. We step into salvation. We grow in in the depth and the knowledge of God and and the wonder of that belief. And we begin to become who he's called us to be. And as we become who God's called us to be, we can't help but serve uh, and build the kingdom of God. And when you build the kingdom of God, you start serving with other people and you'll start to have a sense of belonging to the family of God. Um, And so that's the model that we've proposed. That's the model that I believe God's called us to. And today we come to the topic of belonging. Someone say belonging. Belonging. This side, sorry, not belonging, (laughs) becoming. Someone say becoming. Becoming. I got a bit excited. Want to go back? Um, Becoming, becoming, becoming who God has called us to be. Let's pray, then let's get into it. Lord, thanks for your word. Thank you that in Christ we have everything we need for life and godliness, as your word says. God, I just pray today that there'd be just a powerful moment where your spirit would engage our hearts. Lord, that you would stir within us this morning, that you would challenge areas that have been kept in some darkness and actually need some repentance. And Father, I pray that we would not leave this place feeling discouraged or disheartened, but as we walk out of this place today, we would be so encouraged, we would be so inspired and built up in faith that you are the one doing the work in us. And as we learn to rest in you, as we learn to come to you as dearly loved children, as we learn to fix our eyes on you, that you will be working to perform your will and purpose in our hearts and ever changing us, ever chipping away at us, 
ever transforming us by the renewing of our minds into the likeness of Christ to be a light in the world. And Father, that's my prayer, that as I speak, that you would speak, that that word would go forth. I pray for soft hearts ready to receive that word in Jesus' name and that we would receive it and we'd be inspired and empowered by it. And together with one loud voice, all the saints said, Amen. 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 So, follow the similar pattern to the other ones. We'll have a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of theology, a bit of teaching around it before we get practical. So, get ready for that. Um, does anyone, has anyone else here given up on uh, free-to-air television? Anyone given up on free-to-air television? Thank you. So, we've totally given up on free-to-air television in our house, except for Channel 22 and... <laughs> Mum and dad need a bit of a break, and the kids are having a bit of a watch. All the mums and dads said amen. And uh, also, if you get a sneaky peek at the cricket occasionally when that's on free-to-air. But apart from that, we've given up on free-to-air television. And the reason we've given up on free-to-air television has nothing to do with the ads, because, yes, the ads are annoying, uh, but that's not why we've given up on it. Um, really, what it has to do with the fact is that I, we just can't stand to watch another grown adult cry because they've made their great-grandmother's tart. (laughs) I cannot stand to see another grown adult cry because their mother has lost two kilos because they've been inspired by their weight loss journey. I can't stand to watch another person cry because someone told them to take all the piercings out of their face and to stop dressing like a fictional superhero and to dress normal and to take all the makeup off and all the piercings off and they look at themselves in the mirror and they're like, oh my gosh, it's such a transformation and they start weeping like, you didn't see that coming? Our world is obsessed with this reality television, isn't it? Whatever happened to Wheel of Fortune? (laughs) Just good old-fashioned spin the wheel and see what happens. Whatever happened to Sale of the Century? You know, good old-fashioned television. But it's all reality television. And so I just can't stand it anymore, so we don't watch it anymore. But... I started, classic me, I start, like, I'm, I start pondering these things. Why is our world so obsessed with reality television? What is going on? Like, ten years ago it wasn't the case, but all of a sudden reality television is everywhere. Every single show is reality. Why? And as I was reflecting on it, it occurred to me that actually I think the reason is all of these shows have to do with one word, and that is Transformation. Our world is obsessed with the idea of transforming, of change, of of turning from one thing into another thing, of becoming more than what I thought I could be. We love the idea that someone could give up their their day job as an accountant and pursue their dream of being a cook. We love this idea of transformation. And you know what? It makes complete sense. Because when you go back to Scripture and you actually realise what God has made us for and intended in us, you go back to the whole Genesis 1 through 3 story, you realise that God is the God of transformation. That God is the God of transformation. 
You know, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says it this way. It says, for God has set eternity in the hearts of men, in the hearts of men and women. He set eternity in our hearts. He set this longing in our hearts for change because we were created, as we've already looked at, to have union with God. That union was separated through sin. And so now humanity has this longing and this craving to become, someone say become, who we were created to be. There is a craving. Erwin McManus calls it a soul craving. He says there's something in the hearts of men and women, every single human being that, that is craving for its right counterpart with God, that is longing to be made right. C.S. Lewis, one of my favourite authors, a great theologian, puts it this way. He says, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy... I can only conclude that I was not made for this world. Let me say it again. If I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that I was not made for this world. What he's saying is that human beings are craving transformation. We are craving that union with God. We're craving connection with God. We're craving something different from what we are. Now, the problem we have is that the Bible tells us that uh, our eyes have been blinded by sin and therefore we don't know what it is that we're craving. And so we're chasing shadows. So we're captivated by an accountant turned cook. We're captivated by a very extremely unhealthy and unhappy person turning their life around through exercise and diet. We're captivated by someone who's clearly got lots of issues and covering it up with what they're wearing, stripping all that stuff off and just with it, the burdens of life falling away as they step into a new self. We're captivated by it because our souls crave it. We're craving connection. We're craving transformation. And it's a biblical principle that the problem is we're not called to crave the shadow. We're not called to chase the shadow. The only way that that transformation finds its fullness and is complete is in Christ. That is the only way that we will ever meet the craving of the soul and find peace and rest is in and through Christ and that connection with the Father, right? And this is what we're looking at with this whole idea of becoming, becoming who God has called us to be. So here's what I want you to do. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Someone say Thessalonians. It's a great name. For a city. And we're going to go to chapter 5, verse 23 to 24. How do we become who God has called us to be? How do we become? How do we find this connection? I could stand up here and say the answer is the gospel. And then I could sit down and we'll all be done. The longer answer is actually understanding the gospel. Like we talked about, having the gospel go from head to heart. So 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 to 24 says this. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify, someone say sanctify, you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body, so spirit, soul and body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. This is a powerful passage of scripture. May, the God, may God himself, so God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The one who calls you is faithful, friends. And he will do it. He will do it. Let's unpack it. Colin Buchanan wrote a fantastic song. It's called Big Words That End in Sean. <laughs> who knows it? Basically, Colin Buchanan explains the gospel in Big Words That End in Sean. Big Words That End in Sean. Show us what the Lord has done. Like he, he loves it. And he explains justification and he goes into all these different shuns that theologians talk about. And as a part of it, he talks about sanctification. And sanctification is this idea of becoming who God's called us to be. But unfortunately, in a song written for five-year-olds, he doesn't quite do it justice. He doesn't quite unpack sanctification in the way that he probably needs to unpack sanctification for adults to have it go from here to here. So here's what I want to do. I want to take you to Bible college for a moment. Is that all right? So scoot over, get your pens out, get your, you know, get your laptops ready, and we're going to go to Bible college for a moment. Sanctification. There's three parts to sanctification. When I was a young Christian and I thought that I, you know, I was learning about sanctification, I just thought sanctification was my striving, like I'm justified in Christ, but then I have this whole life of trying to become more like Jesus. And just working and working and working and working, and the more I work, then I'll become a little bit more holy, right? And that's really what sanctification means. All right? It comes from this Greek word hagios. Everyone say hagios. And what that means is holy. It's the exact same root word as when we talk about holy. So sanctification means to become holy. Yeah, and we think of that, those scriptures, be holy for I am holy. So it's about growing in righteousness. This is sanctification, but it's three parts. It's not one thing. And so what we see with sanctification is first and foremost, we have something called positional sanctification. Someone say positional And what this is talking about is that in Christ, we have been sanctified. We have been positioned, all right? And this is fixed and final. Let me give you some scripture to go along with it. When we go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians is so great. Ephesians 2, let me read this to you, verse 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So you were in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom, and the spirit who was now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Notice that it says that you were made alive in Christ and have been seated. He raised us up with Christ and he has seated us, seated us 
in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That means if you are in Christ, you are seated with Christ. You are seated with Christ. Right now, your spirit person, spirit man, spirit woman, the person, uh, the spirit within you, the real you, deep within your flesh, if you are in Christ, you are seated with Christ on high. You are positioned with Christ. You have been made alive. It is called positional sanctification. Uh, we often talk about that whole idea of justification. How are you going, Bible college students? So you, we talk about being justified by faith, being made right, positional sanctification. Because you're justified, you are seated with Christ. You have been made righteous. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is who you are right now. That's who you are. That is awesome. So positionally, you are seated with Christ. You have been positionally sanctified. It is fixed. It is done. It is immovable for those who are in Christ Jesus. The second one we have is ultimate sanctification. And this is talking about not now. It's talking about the end of times. It's talking about the fact that when that final day comes, that you will be with Christ on that last day. 1 Corinthians 15. Who wants to go there? I do. Let's do it. 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read from verse 52. So, actually, 51. Listen, let me tell you a mystery. This is Paul writing. I love the way Paul writes. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. In the flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, oh, this is good. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and let nothing move you. Always gives yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. Why is the labor not in vain? Because you are positionally sanctified and on that final day there will be ultimate sanctification and you will stand with Christ as he leads the procession of the saints of God in the train of his robe, riding on his beautiful white horse. And that's your position in Christ. It is fixed, it is done at the moment of salvation. Amen? Positionally sanctified, ultimately sanctified. So what is this rest of this sanctification thing? And what we talk about in, uh, in theological circles is the idea of experiential sanctification. Someone say experiential. And experiential sanctification is this idea of the journey of the flesh. It's the idea that I am saved, I am redeemed, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus... And yet, Romans chapter 7, I live in a fallen fleshly body that is prone to wandering. And so there's this nature, there's a new creation, there's this new identity of who I am in Christ. And I know that and it's immovable. And yet, for some reason, my flesh sometimes leads me to want things that are not of God and are not good for me. And it is the battle of the flesh. 
Can I have anyone here who would acknowledge that this is true in their lives? This is true in our lives. So we are positionally sanctified. There is ultimate sanctification coming. And yet while we live, we dwell in these bodies and we endure and undergo experiential sanctification. Who's enjoying Bible college today? Experiential sanctification, the journey of the flesh, a decreasing incidence of sin and an increasing incidence of holiness in the outworking of our lives until the final day that Christ comes and makes us new forevermore. This is what we're talking about. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians. It's why Paul talks about, I beat my body, I make it a slave. He goes on and on and on about, be holy for I am holy. He's talking about this whole idea of experiential sanctification. And so it begs this simple question. If I am positionally sanctified, if I am eternally justified and I will be standing with Christ, then why, oh why, oh why, do I have to worry about experiential sanctification? Why do I have to transform? Why do I have to change? If I'm saved and it's Christ's work in me, Why labour and strife? Why even try? Why want to change? Why can't I just go on living in sin? Because it's not about me, it's all about him. Why? It's a great question. And there are many circles in in the Christian world. I've got a friend who's a theologian and that's one of the things he says. He goes, you know what, I can never aspire to it. And so he lives a particular life in this knowledge that he's saved by Christ. I'm like, yeah, but where's the, like, where's the change? Where's the sanctification? Where's the ongoing work of holiness? So let's have a look at the why. Here's what I would answer to someone like that. First and foremost, God demands it. Mic drop. See you later. Let me give you some scripture just to back up what I said. First Peter 13. Chapter 1, verse 13 and 16. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So set your hope on your ultimate sanctification as obedient. Someone say obedient. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. I've written 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8. Matthew 5, verse 48, for those of you taking notes. Romans 6, verse 12. Actually, Romans 6, the whole chapter. Romans 12, the whole chapter. And the list goes on and on and on. Really simply, why undergo experiential sanctification? Because God demands it. And why does he demand it? Because if I make a vow to my wife to love her and be committed to her, that is fixed, that is done. But in love, if I love her, what does that mean for my life? If I say, yep, I'm with you and I go off just cheating on her and living a life of debauchery and whatever else, what does that actually say about the nature of my love? Let's go right back, guys. Let's go back to the previous sermon. If we have a revelation of what Christ has done for us, the love of God in Christ Jesus, how can we possibly just pursue a life of filth? 
We can't. Because the Bible says it's like trampling the Son of God underfoot. It doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. That's the ongoing battle, Romans 7. But what it does mean is there should be a cataclysmic shift in my my perspective and a longing to love Jesus because he loved me. And as I love Jesus and I listen to Jesus and I gaze upon Jesus and I ponder on his beauty and glory, something happens to me. I begin to change. I begin to be transformed. Daily walking in pursuit of Christ. God demands it. Secondly, why does, why does he demand it? That we might know fullness of life. Do you know the Bible tells us in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy that God's love and blessings flow to a thousand generations for those who love him and obey his commands. God says, why walk in experiential sanctification? Why obey me? Because there's blessing in it. Because there's fullness of life in it. You see, the world is chasing after the shadow, looking for transformation, thinking they're having a great time. But here's what happens to those people is actually what they're pursuing is the very cause of what is causing their death. How many people live those lives? Just like there's movie after movie of these superstars or rock stars who chase after these things in life and they're having everything the world can throw at them and yet they get to a particular point in life and they are more depressed and they are more in pain than they've ever been before because they're chasing after shadows. And yet the Bible tells us that when we submit to Christ, we find fullness of life and blessing. Who wants to live in blessing? I do. So I will submit to Christ and I will repent of my sin. And when I make a mistake, I know who I am. I belong to Christ. We've already said that. I believe in his, his positional and his ultimate sanctification. And therefore, I get back up. I don't allow the lies of the enemy to condemn me, for there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I just keep on walking the walk of faith. In blessing. Let's carry on. Why? Because it's the evidence of our salvation. John 14, if you love me, you will obey what I command. It's not proof of our salvation, but it's the evidence. It's what flows out of salvation. How many times have you uh, been hanging around with someone and, like we've heard Sammy's testimony. Sorry, Sammy, I'm going to use you as an example again. But if Sammy came in here and his life had not changed at all from what it was before, where's the evidence of salvation? The power of that testimony is that his life is transformed. Amen? Because your life is transformed, it's like people see that and go, there's something different about you. God is at work in your life. And because of that, it brings us to the last point, which is for the harvest. Why would anyone want to pursue Christ if the followers of Christ are no different from them? Do you know the early church? I'm doing some more work on the early church at the moment, and it's just blowing my mind. But Tertullian, an early, uh, an early church author, he made the comment that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What was he saying? He said, as Christian after Christian after Christian turned from the, the following of Rome and the worship of Roman gods and started being different to the Roman world and they suffered all sorts of pain because of it, he said it was in their suffering, it was in their transformation that the rest of the world saw them and was like, whoa, they've got something. 
The more they watched these guys and girls lay down their lives for the gospel, the more they were so captivated by that, they were like, Jesus must be real. What a witness. And so they too would begin to lay down their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as Christians begin to walk in experiential sanctification that our witness is elevated. It's about putting the light on a hill, amen, so that the world can see the light. Okay, that's the why. Who's with me? So that's the why. Let's do the how. How do we grow in righteousness? Let's get real practical for a moment. How do we live lives that continually grow in faithfulness, godliness, and decrease in sinfulness? Because it is hard. Like Paul himself said it in Romans 7. It's hard. It's not easy sometimes. Sometimes our, like our flesh chases after stuff, but our spirit is chasing after something else. And how do we grow in holiness and righteousness? You're awfully quiet. I hope this is sinking in. Hebrews 4.12. I'm going to have to cut this off. Seriously, I've got like 50 passages of scripture to throw at you. I told you we were going to Bible college. How do we grow in Christ? The first thing is this, is to abide. It's to abide in Christ. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. John 15, the whole thing about abiding in Christ. John 17, verse 17, abiding in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 24, it's about God working us. Zechariah 4, verse 6, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, 5, my preaching wasn't with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Colossians 1, all of it. Ephesians 3, all of it. Jude 24, now unto him who is able to keep me from falling and present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, my Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. John 17, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. 1 Peter 5 verse 10, the grace of God will himself restore you and make you strong. Here's what I want you to catch of that. If we go back to our main text, that main text, 1 Thessalonians 5, when it says, may God himself, someone say himself, the God of peace sanctify you. How do we live and grow in righteousness? It is a work of God. All we do in the abiding, as we abide in Christ, as we sit with God, as we gaze upon his beauty, as we just position ourselves before his cross and all that he has done, as we reflect upon who he is, abiding in Christ in his word, then he brings sanctification in us. It is a work of God. He himself will do it. I love that. He himself will do it. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless. The one who calls you is faithful. And then he says, in case you didn't catch it, and he will do it. What freedom. No longer just beating my body, being like, oh, I can't do this. It's a work of God. God's the one who brings us as we abide in him, yeah? yeah? But then here's the second thing. The second thing is divide. 
So we abide in Christ, but then we actually have to divide from the things of the world. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, abiding, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we'll not grow weary and lose heart. So here's the thing. God's the one who does the work. And for some reason, he then calls us to run. So God does the work. He's the only one who can sanctify us. And yet he calls us to throw off the sin that so easily entangles and run with him. So he's like, I'm going to do it, but you've got to partner with me in it. The great paradox of the gospel, isn't it? Let me put it this way. Have you ever considered... I, I like, was reading this the other day. I was like, this is amazing. Have you ever considered how, you know, Jesus walked on water, right? Didn't he? Yes. Do you know the first time that he started preaching, he went up to some dudes. One of them happened to be Simon who became Peter. And he was like, lend me your boat so we can go out onto the water so I can stand on the boat and I can preach to the people. Why? Wouldn't that be more powerful just to cruise out on the water and just be like, right, you lot, let's get stuck into it. Everyone would have been like, oh my goodness, he's walking on water. But he didn't do that. He said to Peter, can I borrow your boat, man? Because I need a boat to stand in. And I think right there summarizes this incredible truth of the gospel that it is the work of God, only the work of God, and yet... For some reason, he wants to use jars of clay like you and me. He says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to partner with you. I'm going to choose. Like, you have a part to play in this work. You've got a part to play in the work of spreading the gospel, and you've got a part to play in the work of your own personal sanctification. It's as you divide, as you throw off the sin that easily entangles. It's as you make sacrifices and step away from things and actually step out of that sin that the work of God as we abide in him brings change and transformation. Are you catching this? It's incredible that God would choose to say, partner with me in your own sanctification. And here's the thing. What it means is making good choices. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. For it's better to enter the kingdom of heaven with one hand then go into the depths of darkness with two. Is he telling you to literally cut your hand off? No, it's a metaphor. <laughs> Let me put it this way. If you are struggling with lust and secrecy because you have a laptop in your bedroom, get rid of the laptop or move it to the lounge room where everyone else is. If you are struggling with a phone in the middle of the night, don't have the phone in your room. But I need it for my alarm, Dave. Get an alarm clock. (laughs) Cut off the right hand. If you struggle with gossip and you are struggling with covetedness, but you're on social media for three hours a day looking at what everyone else has, 
that you don't have, even though it's an edited reality, it's a whole other sermon that I'm passionate about. <laughs> Get off of social media. Cut the right hand off. Bring about the change in your life so that the work of God in abiding can bring sanctification. Amen? Amen. If you are someone who's wrestling with alcoholism and you go, but I'm called to those people. So you're going to slutty nightclubs at one o'clock in the morning to be a witness and you always end up passed out. Maybe God's not calling you to that place yet. Maybe he's calling you to the Lawn Bowls Club where you can hang out with some 80-year-olds for a bit. Or 60. Or 40. Kelvin Kirko was a great lawn bowler as a young man. Do you know what I'm saying, though? Understand where your weakness is and throw it off. Don't pursue the stuff or enter into a place for the sake of the gospel that's going to cause you to fall. No, cut it off for a while. Who knows, maybe one day we'll call you back into that space when you are strong and equipped so that you can stand in the armour of God and be a light in that place, but it's not right now. Am I being strong enough here? Cut it off. Cut it off. Turn to someone and say, cut it off. Again, scripture everywhere. <laughs> Romans 6, 19. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness, leading to sanctification. Romans 12, the whole thing. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, 27. Run the race. I beat my body. I make it a slave. That's Paul talking. 1 Peter 1, 3, 13, 16. Be holy because I'm holy. Colossians 1, 28, 29. Labor and strive. On and on and on and on. This whole idea of I strive, I labor, I work. Why? To cut it off. So that as I abide, sanctification will come. Because he's the one who does it. No striving apart from him will ever lead to me becoming holy. He's the one who does it. All I have to do is abide and divide. Last one. The last one is this, is remind. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ. This is, I think, huge because what happens in Christian circles, if you're anything like me, and this has been, like God in the last couple of years has just been smashing with me with this over and over and over again. I'm a driven sort of personality in everything that I do, and that includes this whole idea of I want to be more like Christ, and so I just live this, this whole idea of, you know, run the race, be like, persevere, sacrifice, be sanctified, and so it was just this labor and striving, but I forgot the abiding. And so God has just been saying, remind yourself who you are. Because what happens is when we make a mistake, the enemy comes and he whispers in your ear and he will try and convince you that you're less than what you are. I remember traveling to go and preach at events and in my mind I'm thinking, you can't do this. You've just had a fight with your wife. How the heck can you stand up there and preach to these people? How can you do that? And these whispers would come and you just draw and you just feel heavy and you're like, I am a wretch. And then you hear the voice of Christ would say, yes, you are a wretch. You are a wretch, but you are saved and you are seated 
and you are positioned with Christ in heavenly places. That is your identity. So stop listening to the liar and start pursuing the provider. Start chasing after Christ and listening. Remind yourself of who you are. And the moment you do that, think of Jesus in the wilderness. Think of Jesus in the garden when the enemy was lying and accusing and doing all these things. He's the accuser of the brethren. Jesus just puts him in his place with correct scripture and just tells him who he is. And it's just building up and reminding yourself of who you are. Can we do that? Can you hear that today? Can you hear that right now of who you are in Christ? I wish I could make it more clear. I wish I could make it like a firework go off in front of your your eyes and settle in your spirit. You are seated with Christ on high. That is who you are. You are positionally sanctified. That is who you are. Loved by God. Saved in Christ. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? To do the good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. Not so that you could live in guilt and shame. That's why Paul at the end of Romans 7 starts Romans 8. He's like, thanks be to God. Because he's going, it's him. It's all him. He's made me who I am. And though I will labor and I will strive to divide from the world, If I abide in him and I know who I am, then I can run without fear of condemnation, guilt or shame because of who he has made me. Amen? That's who you are. Let's stand to our feet. This is who you are. Band, you can come up. I promised myself today that I wasn't going to leave preaching until I'd given people an opportunity to respond. Sometimes in a Baptist church, we get so caught up in the teaching of the word that we don't give space for the responding to God's word. And I should have prepped you with this half an hour ago, so you were thinking about it and we're ready for it, but I didn't do that, so I'm trusting God's done that work. Thanks be to God, because it's not about me, it's all about him. But as the band plays, I just want to give space to respond. I want to give space for us to come and pray to come and receive encouragement. That's what this is about. Some of you in this moment, God's been stirring up some things that need to change in order to divide. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to pray and to give that to God. You don't have to say anything to me. It's between you and God. But as a symbol of that, I'm going to invite you actually to come forward and to give it to God. And some of you are wrestling with your identity. You're wrestling with that abiding. And the whole idea of who you are in Christ, you are really struggling to receive that. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to come forward and to pray and just to sit with God and say, remind me who I am, Lord. Let it sink in. Let it become a revelation and a seed that cannot be uprooted. Let it fall on some good soil and bring about a great harvest. And some of you, as I've been preaching, you've been thinking about a heap of other things. And that's okay because it's probably stuff God's put on your heart that you're wrestling with. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to come forward and to pray.
and to give those things to God. The things that you're worrying about, the things that you're stressing over and that you're striving over. Have we given them to Jesus? Because that's all a part of abiding. So come, let's pray. And if you would like someone to pray with, we have a prayer team. We've got our elders. We've got, like, if you've got faith to pray in this room and you're like, I want to pray with some people, then I'm going to invite you to come forward and be here to pray with people. Amen. But it's time to pray. So if we can have just prayers come forward, if we can have people who are keen just to get some prayer, or if you just want to come and kneel and that's all you want to do, or you just want to come and stand and not get prayer, that's fine. But it's between you and God. Come. Come. We'll sing, we'll pray, and we'll respond to God. Come. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.